welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. For pretty much all of the last four decades, we've been heading in one direction only when it comes to the global economy, and that's towards increased globalization, increased specialization, with one country doing one kind of job, another country doing a second job, third or fourth countries adding value somewhere else, and then the whole thing being put together in a global value chain. Now, the coronavirus pandemic has thrown all of that, all of that into question. Uh, the supply of goods in many cases has been breaking down and countries have been scrambling to get basic necessities into shops or into their medical services. What is the longer term impact of the current environment likely to be? Well, to help answer that question, a complex one, I'm delighted to be joined on today's podcast by Uma Kambampati, who is Professor of Economics at the UK's University of Reading, where she specialises in global trade and development. Uma, thank you very much for joining the New Money Review podcast. Uh, You have just published an article in The Conversation where you highlighted the fragility of the global supply chains, uh, which which has been shown by the coronavirus pandemic. Could you tell listeners what you've seen and what you think the potential implications are for global supply chains and global trade? Okay. So, um, I mean, the article that I wrote was very specifically about supply chains in the pharmaceutical um, sector. And um, we've seen, you know, day in and day out, uh, we listen to our politicians trying to square a circle about um, test kits or about um, swabs, uh, ventilators, and so on. And it got me thinking about what exactly was happening and why was it actually so difficult. Now, I understand, of course, that we have an unprecedented amount of demand for these. But despite that, one would not have expected such a massive um, issue on the supply side. And so I began digging a little into this and realized, of course, that a number of these items um, either originate in China, which was the place with the original uh, virus, uh, where the virus first uh, hit us, or where components, etc., are produced in China. And that's what makes it so difficult. The other um, aspect of it is, of course, that for some of these items, um, the swabs, for instance, is a very good case in point. Uh, one of the largest producers of nasal uh, swabs which are required for the test kits is in Italy, in Lombardy, which is actually the second place where there was a massive outbreak. And so it, it highlights that actually there is enormous fragility in, um, in global supply chains. And this was, of course, on the, on the pharmaceutical side. And that's the one that we are looking at. Uh, day in and day out. But um, behind the scenes, this is happening across the board to lots and lots of um, manufacturers and and therefore um, to supply chains uh, as more and more countries have been locked down. Uh, you, 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 uh, thank you for uh, explaining that. So you talked about the, um, the problems in the pharmaceutical supply sector. Uh, in your article, you also... Uh, start with the example of a deal struck by uh, the UK government with France and and China or French and Chinese companies to build a nuclear power station in southwest England in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that, in retrospect, now looks like a high point in the UK's embrace of globalization. Will we look back at this point as a, 
this period of history as a as really a, t- a turning point, or is it is it too early to say? You know, I think um, if if we didn't learn from from this, uh, we really would be very foolish. And I don't think human history says that humans are that foolish. So I think we will learn something. Are we going to learn that uh, global supply chains are wrong and globalization is wrong? I I don't think so. I think what we will learn, though, is something a little more nuanced, which is that actually it's very um, it's a high risk strategy to decide that we can pretty much rely on uh, on uh, global production to supply our needs of very strategic items. Now, the reason I started with uh, with the Hinkley Point example is, uh, you know, um, over uh, over the last few decades, um, more and more of our industrial sectors are being deemed as non-strategic. Uh, nuclear power would have been one of the sectors where you might have expected that the strategic argument would be a really important one, right? Because yes. uh, in every way, it is uh, it is a high-risk uh, sector. And the point at which we decided that even in that sector, it was okay to have international firms setting up a nuclear power station in the UK when there are such high risks and where actually it's much harder for the government to control. It doesn't matter whether the government thinks it's located in the UK and therefore we can control it. I don't think it's that straightforward. That was surprising. Now, given that that happened, actually there are very few sectors where the government uh, or successive governments have decided that um, uh, these sectors are strategic. And as far as I can make out in the UK, there remains only one sector, and that's agriculture, that is considered sufficiently strategic that you wouldn't want um, it. And I, and I don't know how much of agriculture in the UK is actually owned uh, by global firms. But, you know, at least there's some attempt um, to think that this is a sector that's local and we need to keep its production going and provide subsidies, etc. Almost all other sectors have passed this point. And I think what we will have learned from, from this uh, crisis, and I um, give a couple of examples um, of other countries which are sort of rethinking um, their exposure to the international uh, to international production is that there must be some industries where either we have a sufficient production at home or we have huge amounts of stockpiles and I and either of those is going to increase costs. Now I don't remember I don't know if you remember but when the Brexit uh, discussion was happening. There was this whole discussion about um, diabetic medication, mm. and Theresa May had to stand up in Parliament and say, "No, don't worry about it. We have sufficient supplies of diabetic medication." Well, it's that kind of thing, you know, where um, it's it's fine that we are relying on an interna- international uh, provider for this medication um, 
and I, uh, under no circumstances do I think that we could produce everything that we needed all at home. That would be uh, total craziness. But I guess at some point, somewhere, there has to be a thought about which of these sectors is strategically important for the UK. Um, and even within these sectors, which aspects of it are important? I mean, I'd like to ask you how far we have to go in the opposite direction. So if we've, if we've reached a point of uh, hyper-specialization where individual countries just do certain things and the UK has decided you know, over the last 20 years it doesn't want to have much of a manufacturing sector, it's going to concentrate in services, well, maybe now that was, the, in, in hindsight, that looks like it was the wrong decision. You know, How far do we have to go back in the opposite direction? Does every country now start saying, you know, we need to have strategic reserves in this sector, this yeah. sector, this sector? Are we going to have you know, national airlines uh, in each country, you know, as an example? Um, you know, that, because that then arguably you're just kind of delaying some very tough decisions. Yeah, I mean, so this is something that I've been thinking about uh, thinking about a lot because uh, on the one hand, our consumption patterns as well as our production um, structure has gone way past the point. I mean, both are too complicated um, for us to rely on a single country and especially a single country that's actually as small as the UK. Um, so I think it's not um, it's not easy to uh, to say oh we have to go back to um, I don't know to the way we were in 1945 or something I don't think that works at all. Um, on the other hand, I think um, having a, so I, I and I think this is actually more true for Western European countries. I don't think all countries have. Uh, gone into this post-industrial space quite like the UK has. The UK has done it, actually has been there for a few decades now. Uh, and other West European countries are sort of getting there. But I think some pullback from there is probably what is going to be required. Now, I don't know if the numbers I read um, are correct, but apparently... Um, Whereas um, China's contribution to global GDP was a, was in single figures in 2003, sort of 15, uh, whatever, 17 years later, it's uh, 16 uh, uh, to 17% of global GDP. You know, that's enormous in a single in a single country. Now, I, I take the point that China is, of course, I don't know, one sixth or one seventh of global population. Um, but even so, if you're, if at some point you have a notion of uh, national boundaries, then um, so much of global production being uh, either based or having some link to uh, to China does make almost all production uh, vulnerable. To outbreaks of this kind. So pulling, uh, you you asked a specific question about pulling back. How far do we yeah. pull back? Yes. I'm actually not sure what I would say to that. I think if I was thinking just of the UK uh, UK economy, uh, I I think uh, if I were a policymaker today, I would begin to think about um, what are the strategic sectors 
and in these strategic sectors what are the what are the strategic components that we need to uh, to keep hold of uh, or at least to keep some control over rather than just relying on it being uh, production at lowest cost uh, which is effectively what uh, what we've been doing and the world has been doing um, for decades as far as uh, global supply chains go and and how do you think the supply chain shock looks from the perspective of the rapidly industrializing nations in in the in Asia China and India you know have, have both uh, had very rapid periods of gdp growth for the last uh, couple of decades um yeah. how how are they looking at what's happening is it are they looking at it from a different perspective or are they are they asking the same kinds of questions so i think um, they they're looking at it um and i'm going to really caricature this but in most cases they are lower down the supply chain so sort of they're at the lower value end of the supply chain so in a sense uh, in many ways you can think of them as being um, in the very short run the key movers so any blockages that happen that influence uh, further up the chain they're the ones who are going to uh, to have an impact right so if your if your most basic material is not available or the repercussions will be felt all the way up the chain but if for instance you don't do r&d for i don't know two months three months you will not feel the repercussions right now though they might impact um things in two years time for instance so i think what's happening with with the number of countries lower down the value chain is they're going to be affected by the reduction of demand um in europe and in america much more than they're going to be affected than they're going to be affected by the value chain the the supply chain itself so for instance um you know the fact that we are all in lockdown and not um buying i don't know let's say not buying clothes garments is certainly going to be affecting and we've already seen examples of this affecting garment manufacturers in bangladesh right but um you know for so so for them it's going to be a demand side shock rather than a supply side shock which is what it has been uh for for western economies right but overall i mean if we can talk about it in in crude terms that the the let's say the, the bargaining power or the 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 strategic importance of having that manufacturing base has oh. is, is now is now like is yeah. it was much clearer than it was uh two or three months ago absolutely and um again um good example of this is there was a recent um i, I wish i remembered um the report but the eu um had to write a report recently that was slightly critical of china and um at the last minute um sort of took out the really critical um language in it um because of concerns over trade links with china right so china's china's bargaining position has uh, has strengthened despite has the has certainly the, strengthened yeah. certainly strengthened we talked so far about uh, the supply uh, chains for for goods what about the you know the connected things of 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 movement of people because most of us have been 
mm. you know, uh, confined to a particular place for the last few weeks. Um, uh, and there's there's been over the last few years, uh, perhaps coincidentally um, uh, or maybe not, uh, you know, some you know anti-immigration rhetoric in many many countries. Yeah. Um, are we going to revisit globally the you know the value of having people? You know, able to move around, or are we are we are we going to head further in the direction of uh, of restricting movements of people? So I I don't I mean I think that um, certainly on the work front, many of us have seen just as we are doing now uh, that a lot of things can be done without people actually flying around, and I suspect that that will affect. And of course, remember that this comes. Um, on the heels of um, all our worries about uh, climate change, um, global warming, and so on. And so I suspect that there will be a reduction of travel, um, both because it's better for the environment, for people not to travel so much, but also because people will begin to see that it is possible to do lots of work without actually being uh on uh, on location um now whether that translates into um anti-immigration rhetoric i think the two are slightly different um because immigration is uh, the immigration issue is tied up so much in people coming living here um you know making use of our resources in inverted commas um and it's less about people traveling and more about people settling. Um, I think that will continue. Um, but I think uh, what the COVID thing has done is more about people traveling and traveling for short term, you know, for holidays, for work. Um, all of that will reduce. With, with its impact on, on countries that are affected uh, in that context, you know, on tourism, uh, countries that have a big stake in, um, in the airline industry and so on. Well, can, can we, if we're talking about a, a temporary or, you know, a semi-permanent uh, retreat from, um, you know, hyper-specialization in, in certain sectors, what are the costs going to be for Consumers, you know, we probably can already see. Uh, I certainly think in the UK, I can see uh, some uh, Im impact on food prices of, yes. of, of more limited supplies. You know, is yeah. this is a, this something we're going to, going to have to get used to? And can we quantify how much this is going to uh, impact us? Yeah, um, I mean, I I think it it's almost impossible to quantify um, in a vacuum. We can almost certainly say that the direction will be upwards. Um, both uh, in terms of um, an increase in prices, a reduction in choice, uh, which is another thing that, uh, you know, we've all got used to. Um, there will be less choice, prices will be higher. Um, and it, that, that should not come as a surprise to anybody because whichever way you look at it, whether it's because we increase our uh, stockpiles of certain items, that increases costs, or because we diversify our suppliers uh, so that instead of always going to the lowest cost supplier, 
we actually say, well, fine, that's a lowest cost supplier, but at least 20% of our supply should come from this other country or this other region. All of that is going to increase costs. Okay. Um, is, it, is it possible to talk about uh, areas of the world or industries or sector that might um, not necessarily benefit from the coronavirus pandemic, but might be well placed to, you know, for the, their competitive position might increase. Uh, you know, they, 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 they may, may have a particular natural advantage or geopolitical advantage. Are, are there any countries that or areas that come to mind? Yeah, I, 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 I now this is a, uh, a completely non-specialist lay view of the world, but it strikes me that in the context of um, of COVID, at least the countries that are less exposed to um, to international movements are actually in again in inverted commas better off. Now it might be that they're poorer. Uh, and therefore, they're not so exposed to global um, movements. But actually, you know, being less exposed has meant that they are less likely to be affected or um, or at least be in the center of this um, of this crisis. Um, now, with regard to the aftermath of it, which is, you know, will they benefit from the changes in production? Etc. Or, or structures of production. I think there are a number of countries, and really, ultimately, depends on which sectors and um, uh, uh, which sectors are considered to be strategic. But I think if um, if companies across the world were to think, oh right, you know what we really need to do is to diversify our up um, our, our supply chains a bit, then I think a number of uh, developing countries could benefit. Um, so if you were to shift out of China, the question for you would be, where would you shift to? Um, and, you know, presumably you'd still be looking for lower cost, um, lower cost providers. And so you will continue to look in the developing world. I think it still remains the case that um, there will be countries um, or a number of countries in Europe will begin to rethink this and bring back some production um, back into Europe. Whether the EU can do it as a region, um, it'll really depend on how fleet-footed the European Commission is and the EU is uh, in bureaucratic terms about being able to get over some of the issues that they had at the start of the virus, you know, where um, where different countries tried to prevent other countries from getting um, getting supplies. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You, you, you pointed out in your article that, uh, you know, the, the, the recent incident where the U.S. allegedly intercepted a shipment of masks bound for France and for, and for yeah. Germany, and then the Germans said this is kind of modern-day piracy. Uh, you know, what is the risk that we, we, we're kind of going to head back into the, the dark days of the 1930s where countries erect trade barriers to protect their local markets and, and everybody suffers as a result? Yeah. So, I mean, clearly what I think what COVID shows us, showed us is the risk is literally a breath away. I, I was really surprised to hear some of the or read some of those uh, stories 
Of course, it's true that we don't yet know what the final truth is in any of those. Um, but it's clearly being the case that most countries which have been affected have actually closed their doors to exports from within the country. Now, this is, of course, a dilemma, right? You have countries whose own um, uh, citizens are being affected. Uh, their most responsible action is to say, fine, we have PPE, we are not going to give it to you. As a government in that country, they're responsible for their citizens, and so they'll say it. So we built into our system a structure that says that actually the responsible way for a government to behave is to hold back its own production. So when you end up in a situation of global crisis of this kind, then the chances of everybody just hunkering down and saying we've got our um, we've got our items, forget about you, is very high. Yeah, and it's kind of an automatic uh, incentive for them to do so. It's, a, even it's an it's, automatic it, it, incentive, it, it, yeah. Yeah, even though it damages everybody in the longer term. Yes. And and that was, of course, the case even in the 1930s. And so, you know, it's the the uh, the thing that this brings to, to the forefront is actually we are never more than a breath away from something like that happening. And governments have to be really very responsible, look long term to be able to prevent that from happening. And on the plus side of this, it must be said that uh, Germany's initial inclination to hunker down in that way was, um, you know, the EU put a stop to it by by taking a sort of uh, a wider, um, uh, you know, a, a wider context uh, about what was happening elsewhere in Europe. Yeah, I, I found that I, I have found and continue to find the debates over these these. Uh, tech-based contact tracing systems or immunity certificate systems that people are talking about introducing as a way out of the uh, the crisis. Uh, you know, the, 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 some countries have, uh, clearly want to go down the national routes, such as the UK and France, but Germany has changed its stance and, and, wants, and wants to take an approach that uh, you know, would seem to be more uh, decentralised and, and, you know, would operate across borders. And that, that seems to me maybe a litmus test of the whole the whole thing and it's going to be very interesting to follow how right how that evolves okay. do, do you have any general thoughts on the you know that we've seen a lot of government intervention in the last uh, few weeks um you know have we now permanently shifted to a uh, have you shifted to a permanently higher public share of economic activity and, and you know what what's what's that going to yeah. look like in the in the decade to come yeah, so I think I think you know this is where um, the um, analogy of the 1930s becomes really apt, and we need to be really careful. I think governments across the world, governments across the world have come into this and have been much more expansionary and much more um, relaxed about being expansionary than you might have expected. So there's a lot of public spending happening on um, on welfare expenditure and so on, which is right um, as things stand. The real worry is that we'll come out of this and governments will begin to think, oh my God, we've got these enormous deficits and therefore we have to now close, uh, you know, um, go back into really strict fiscal um, austerity type um, situation. And I think that would be a real disaster because 
the the issue that we have now is government expansionary policy has has maintained um well not economies at an even keel but uh, it's being done because um really of the ethical and the social welfare implications of the virus um if we come out of this and governments then think okay now's the time for us to to try and tighten down then any possibility of this expansionary um expenditure actually improving the state of the economy will be lost so the important thing would be for governments to hold their nerve at that point remain expansionary so that it's not just that people's incomes are maintained but actually that can then filter down into um into creating employment or at least sustaining uh, firms etc rather than us going into a massive depression which i think is the worry the world over as we move hopefully you know through the worst of the pandemic and into the recovery phase uh, have along that that lasts are there any particular economic indicators or or trends you're keeping a particularly close eye on i th- so i think um the amount of furloughing we do how long we are able to continue to furlough the number of firms that go bust will be a massive issue for us um and the number of firms that are um going to sleep as it were and and hoping to rejuvenate themselves when we come out of lockdown um and of course um unemployment because if furlough stops then actually all of these people will be on the uh, on the unemployment books and so those are the things that we need to keep an eye on the gdp is the gdp i mean everybody uh, watches it i think yes we would have to keep an eye on inflation figures because with expansionary policy and supply that is very constrained prices are likely to go up but we do need to keep the impact of that in perspective and not overreact to it well, well thank you very much for your time that's okay thank you paul listening to this new money review podcast the future of money in 30 minutes money is changing fast it's moving more quickly and cheaply it's becoming more intelligent and more transparent at the same time it's becoming more complex and for many of us more annoying if you'd like to support new money review you can do so in two ways on the right hand side of our homepage newmoneyreview.com you can find a link to our patreon account p a t r e o n/newmoneyreview There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.